welcome again to Campion Conversations, an informal podcast discussion of pop culture and the liberal arts. My name is Dr. Dre, I'm a lecturer in literature here at Campion College. It should not strike anyone as extraordinary that Jane Austen's writings have proved ripe for adaptation. Austen's work is rightfully beloved, filled with comedy and pathos and richly drawn characters and scenes of deftly executed drama that leap off the page. What is remarkable, however, is the breadth and variety of adaptations that have been drawn from her mere handful of novels. There have been lush BBC television miniseries, seemingly best exemplified by the beloved Pride and Prejudice adaptation of 1995, starring Jennifer E and Colin Firth's wet puffy shirt. There have been ornate cinematic spectacles like Gwyneth Paltrow's borderline twee Emma and Emma Thompson's sense and sensibility. But from that point on, things get wildly diverse. There are operas and musicals and comic books and radio fictions. Austen's characters have been murdered in Death Comes to Pemberley, eaten by zombies in Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, and even blown up by a tank on Red Dwarf. Some adaptations of her novels have been so extreme that they become almost unrecognisable in their modernised recontextual forms. From versions of Pride and Prejudice that span from Bridget Jones's diary, to the Bollywood Bride and Prejudice, to versions of Emma such as the Hindi language Aisha, or the Beverly Hills high school comedy Clueless. There have been numerous scripted YouTube vlog adaptations like From Mansfield with Love and the Emmy award winning series The Lizzie Bennet Diaries and Emma Approved. Even Austen herself has appeared in semi-fictionalised versions of her life, in works such as Becoming Jane starring Anne Hathaway and Miss Austen Regrets starring Olivia Williams. She's been referenced multiple times in shows like Doctor Who, where it's hinted she's Clara Oswald's lover, or in Blackadder, where Edmund Blackadder declares Jane Austen is just the pseudonym for a burly Yorkshire man with a beard like a rhododendron bush. So what is it about this author and her works that makes them so endlessly regenerative? Why do we continuously seek to reinterpret and re-explore these beloved tales? To discuss the canon of Jane Austen's adaptations, those that succeed, those that fail, and why, I am joined today by Anna Hitchings, Media and Communications Officer of Campion College. Hello. And fellow lecturer, Dr. Jeremy Bell. Hello. Thank you both so much for joining me today. Thank you for having us. Let's start in a relatively innocuous manner. What was the first adaptation of Jane Austen's work that you remember seeing? Doesn't necessarily have to be the first that you saw, but the, the first that really struck you. And what did you think? Was it, was it worthy? Did it fall short? The first one I saw was actually the BBC, the, the much-loved BBC um, version of Pride and Prejudice, and I think I watched it pretty much when it was coming out. So I was right. only about seven or eight years old. So that was not only my introduction to Jane Austen, that was actually my intru- introduction to my long and abiding love affair with period drama in general. Uh, and even though as a young child, it wasn't just me, by the way, it was me and my sister and our cousins and you know friends, we all absolutely loved it even though we couldn't understand half the dialogue or what was going, probably more than half, in fact. But there was just... It's interesting to me now as a child that I loved it so much, even though I understood so little of what was going on compared to what I do now. It was just, I think, something about the magic of that, obviously, you know, mm. touched me. Is it, is it like, uh, you know, is psychoanalyzing yourself when you were a kid, but, it, but is it something about that sort of... Some magical otherworldliness of the costumes and these beautiful locations and these sort of garden settings and uh... yeah I think probably more I think probably more the costumes and just the lifestyle and this and the, and the I mean I, I can't re- even remember to be honest at that stage if I'd watched many period set films or tv shows certainly we grew up watching things like Princess Bride and things that are sort of set in a different time but you know, I think it was the very first miniseries I'd ever seen, and uh, the first, certainly the first Jane Austen I'd ever seen, even though I'd heard about it, I'd never really... 
actually, actually, I'm not sure if that's true now that I think about it. I think I might have seen the, um, there's a much earlier version of Pride and Prejudice, but which I like to think of as the Gone with the Wind version of Pride yes. and Prejudice, starring Greg, Greg Carson. <laughs> and Lawrence, <laughs> Lawrence Olivier. Olivier. Yeah. yeah, and I'm actually, you know what? I take it all back. That was the first one I ever, no, I'm remembering. Liar! It's yeah. funny, like, <laughs> never mind, this is how memory plays tricks on you. That, my, my sister and I watched that, ye- like, you know, when we must have been very young, like I can't have been younger than six, I think. But no, we watched that and we liked that. And then when, oh, so you did like that. Yeah, we did like that. Right. But then when the um, that's right. So we knew the, we knew the story. So when the BBC series came out, it was like, oh, okay, let's see what they do with this story. And of course, it was <laughs> lips and bounds better to put it mildly. So we ended up loving that one even more because mm. it was just so much better. That's one. Okay. And Jeremy, do you remember the first that, that you? Saw? Yes, definitely. It was likewise the 1995 um, Pride and Prejudice. Great. And. I'm fairly sure that I had not actually read any Jane Austen before seeing that. I definitely then read Pride and Prejudice soon after that, and, and, and I at least dipped into some of her other works uh, not that long afterwards. Um, anyway, so yes. So you, you were Pride quite taken with it as well? Oh, right? yes. Okay, excellent. And, and there are people I know. I remember a friend of mine who is not, was not, is not, to my knowledge, a fan of Jane Austen in particular, but he, he made a remark to me once that, Watching that series, you know, we were both fourteen or fifteen at the time. Yes, it gave him a great sense of um, I, I don't know what word he used, but well-being, happiness, something like that. He actually found it a very mm. um, a very warming mm. uh, piece of television to watch, and I could relate to that. There, there is yeah. something peculiarly mm. magical about that particular production. That's so interesting that you say that because when I've tried to introduce people to period pieces, people who would otherwise be fairly short, they're not into that sort of style of television. That seems to get people every time. It's funny, like, I've actually, you remember there are some friends I've had who I tried to introduce them to something maybe a little bit more, that I th- thought would just sort of, you know, made a little bit more recently, maybe attuned to their tastes a little bit better. And when I, just as an introduction, and when I, you know, kind of slowly got them around to this version of Pride and Prejudice, that has impressed them more than anything I've shown. And mm. that, you know, I've had, I remember once having a friend turn to me and say, I wish you'd shown me this one first because I would have loved it, you know, straight away. Like, you, you sort of saved the best for last kind of thing. Yeah. So there is something magical about it. Well, I don't know what it is. It's very earnest without having that kind of stuffiness of, of the old style mm-hmm. period pieces where it's all bad wigs and awkwardly fitting outfits and people just that little bit too uptight and proper as they deliver these lines in sort of ham-fisted Shakespearean form. It's modern enough and uh, the characters and the acting is lived in enough that it, it feels very fresh. But it's not like winking at the camera or well, being was, too sort of self-aware. And, and no, I com- yeah, completely agree. I think the reason that one works so well is because it's just really, really authentic. It's mm. not... Tr- I mean, I see some other adaptations, not necessarily just of Jane Austen, but just of period novels in general, that are obviously trying to make themselves understood by a modern audience. Yes. By pandering... That's what I meant by the... Yes, it's yeah, sort of winking kind of, and... Exactly. Yeah. They pander to the modern audience. And I think that you kind of pick up on that and it's... I don't know what it is, but it's just not that appealing, whether people see that as to be a little bit patronising or, 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 or what, what have you. But because it's not trying to be anything other than exactly what it is and it's not apologising for what it is, that authenticity, I think, is what makes it so charming. It's, it's got a very clever script, too. I'm not sure. Who's the guy who... Oh, Andrew Davies. Oh, <laughs> there you go right there. I was going to look it up. You already knew what the Probably my favourite screenplay ad at tour. I'm not sure what the... It's re- well, you might like then that he he did he was responsible for the more recent Sense and Sensibility. Okay, but the way that he divides up the novel is just very clever and and very elegant, so that you get to live in. And this is why I think it's such a fantastic adaptation. 
and why I think film versions of Pride and Prejudice fail is you don't get to live in the misconceptions of the characters long enough. Whereas with that one, you do. You mm. get to, like, Darcy just gets to be... It's immersive. This, yeah. And he gets to be this bastard who just kind of, like, swans <laughs> off for a little while and you just live in... Uh, Lizzie's land. hatred of him. Sorry? Wickham land. Yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you get, you get to, you know, watch her be persuaded to another way of thinking before it all sort of snaps back together again and you have the revelations. And it's just very, very cleverly done, the way, the way that they map it all out, on top of just being really elegantly handled. The dialogue that, that he, he draws from the novel is splendid and, and very clever. He definitely gets all the best parts. Mm. And throws in a few extra, apparently. People are obsessed with that damn... Swimming in the lake <laughs> scene, my God. That, 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 in, that inclusion was pure genius in hindsight. <laughs> I've heard people... I mean, to, the most iconic part of the entire series. I think it's just completely gratuitous. But I have heard of, of people I say like that it. Well, it, it allows Lizzie... Like, visually, we get the representation of uh, Darcy feeling himself, I guess. <laughs> like, having a moment to himself where... He's just allowed to have that kind of romantic or singular freedom that is always obscured when he's in a stuffy outfit and in a social situation and it's necessary for the for the story. Uh, I feel inclined to say too, Colin Firth was born to play Darcy. Oh that my is very goodness. true. Isn't yeah. he just because you know you were saying that you you had you had watched the series before reading the novel? Is yes. That right? yeah, yeah, so same with me. I didn't read and I mentioned this in the last podcast, but I, I read the novel I read Pride and Prejudice after having watched the series a number of times. And what amazed me, particularly I think the second time that I read it, was just how unbelievably perfect Colin Firth's portrayal. I mean, he really is he is Mr. Darcy, more so than I think than any of the other actors that ever ever, ever played any of the characters. He is just so on point. I don't mind what's his name, Matthew McFadden in the yeah. the more recent one. I I'm not saying I like him. Uh, like I don't I don't think he's fantastic. Uh, and he's a bit too angry, I think as well. There's a, there's a sort of an angry streak that he he puts in him. He's okay, but yeah. See, I Colin Firth is like the Well, I just don't think Matthew McFadden kind of really gets Darcy completely because I right. vaguely remember watching an interview with him when that film the Kira, this is the Kira Knightley version of Pride and Prejudice was coming out and I'm pretty certain he said that he deliberately did not read the novel of Pride and Prejudice he wanted to have the vision of the director Joe Wright's version of the story in his mind and he didn't want that to sort of be too blended with the version of the novel I mean that could be partly interpretation of what he said but that was my understanding and I think that that was a mistake I personally think that all actors, if they're playing um, characters in in films and TV shows that are based on classic novels, then they should really read the source material as well. I might take slight issue with that, but I I think probably... No, 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 but I think in the case of something like this, where the character is so beloved, you probably do yourself a disservice to not go in with an awareness of what your audience is at least expecting, if you're even planning to subvert it to... Maybe. uh, I kind of think that he did the role a bit of a disservice, though, by not familiarising himself more with the character. But look, I don't have a very strong opinion about this. I think his performance was good, it was fine, it just wasn't as great as it could have been. Because I like, again, I like Matthew McFadden, I just didn't... I prefer him in Little Dorrit. (laughs) Didn't have all of the shades that I think the character probably needed in, in that film. Or that film in general. Maybe we can talk briefly about that one and move on but poor Jeremy hasn't said much. <laughs> I haven't seen the film. I know. <laughs> it's it's a film that that suffers just because of its 
length. Pride and Prejudice needs that opportunity to kind of live with the characters and their misconceptions, as I said before. And this one just sort of ping-pongs around. Like, the moment that you're meeting Mr. Darcy, oh, he's a jerk, then suddenly, oh, he seems to like Lizzie, and oh, he's proposed to her, and she's rejected him. And there's just no... By the time you get to the second half of the novel, which weirdly they they linger on in this one, and you're discovering that, well, he's actually a bit of a sweet guy and there's a bit more to him than, than you thought. You haven't actually had the time to be misconceived about him long enough mm. for that revelation to mean anything. That's a good point, yeah. It's just almost like, well, Lizzie, you're an idiot to think that he was such a jerk straight out yeah, of the Yeah, no, so, that's so true, actually. You do yeah. get that impression by watching it. I mean, like you say, I just don't think you can really do this novel justice in a film. You're always going to have to squish stuff together and, and, and cut other stuff out. One thing I will say in its favour, and because I don't I don't dislike this film, it's it's I don't think it holds a candle to the nine ninety five BBC version. It's pretty, I'll say that. It is very pretty. But uh, one thing I would I will say in favour of it, I remember a review coming out at the time which was quite in favour of the film saying what was really nice about it was that it allowed you moments to it really allowed moments to breathe in throughout the film. There were there are some quiet moments. But they're stupidly selected. I mean, I actually agree with that, but I, th- I think they're really oddly selected. Like, there's that moment where she's looking around Pemberley, and so you linger for like ten minutes on her looking at some marble statues. And you're like, well, couldn't we have some dialogue? Okay, it's, a, it's an exaggeration, but you do. It's long enough that you start thinking, like, I'd like to hear somebody saying something or just having a conversation mm. a bit more than her just longingly looking at a, a marble statue. I'm not even sure what's being communicated there, except that she likes his stuff. Like, <laughs> it's weird. Yeah, I'm not sure, but um, but I like that at least that the director was considered enough to leave those moments in there rather than it just being one thing after the other. Like, it's not as bad as everyone says it is. It's, no. but it's not great either absolutely so i guess i should ask and move us along a bit what makes a successful adaptation of austin's work do you think jeremy firstly it needs to be faithful that's one major problem of course with the as anna said the gone with the wind uh, pride (laughs) and prejudice um just i mean it plays fast and loose with the story it needs to be faithful and a big bugbear for me about a lot of adaptations and i think i'm going to disagree with both of you about some of these is um Yes, the twee quality. I mean, you right. said about the, the Emma of... Um, Can you just explain to me what twee means? 1996. Well, okay, what's the best way of putting this? Um, yes, it's saccharine, sentimental in a certain way. Um, it plays on all of the superficial trappings much more than it should. And, um, and, and you feel as if you're sort of watching you know, a kind of elegant ballet as opposed to human beings actually interacting. Yeah. So you have to avoid that. I think that the 1996 Emma fails dismally to avoid that. <coughs> I disagree. <laughs> Fine, we can come to that. Maybe but I, like, I personally secretly like a little bit of twee. Maybe that's what it is. I, but there, well, I think there's a reason it's popular. Yeah. I, I, I think I tend to drift more towards Jeremy's interpretation, though. But, but there's a reason that it's popular. There's a reason that the, the Emma film blew up the way that it did. But you also have to avoid the opposite temptation, which is to sort of turn Jane Austen into gritty realism. Yes. Um, which is <laughs> which is actually... Zombies. Well, yeah. which is even more ridiculous. I mean, that whatever else she is, Jane Austen is elegant. She's Mozart, she's not Beethoven. I can't immediately think of an adaptation that falls grossly into that second category, although from what some people have told me, the, the, the film, 
the, of, uh, the, the one that you were just talking about, um, the Kira Knightley film, does to some extent. Yes, it's not so technically set in the right time period. Um, there's a little bit of people sort of splashing around in mud needlessly just to kind of go, look, it's, it's realistic and, mm. and grim. And the Bennett house is a little bit more rundown and rustic than you might expect. Uh, and in some ways, it's it's kind of nice to see a, a different slant on it, but it's it feels a little affected. It feels almost mm. like they're just going, oh, you're expecting it to be all bonnets yes. and teacups and yeah. things, and we're going to go this way. That I think that affected quality is what I was saying before about why the BBC production of, of Pride and Prejudice is so popular, because it doesn't yeah. do that at all. It's completely unaffected. It's, I should also say, uh, and I think maybe I'm speculating a little bit much about the director's intent, but I, I think the idea that they were going for is that there's almost a sense in which their romance represents a kind of coming out of a dark ages or something. Cause the whole thing builds up towards this kiss between, uh, Darcy and no, they Lizzie. don't even kiss <laughs> when the sun rises. Don't they kiss? No, no, oh, no. Oh, I imagine puts, it they, they a kiss. touch far its eye. Cause I watched this very carefully because you know why in the American version, they add another scene at the end, which is, which is the two of them kissing, which is just so silly. Cause it's like in America, like if they're not kissing, it's not true love. Right. But it's only in the US version, in the UK and Australian version, that scene isn't in there. That's amazing. In my memory, it, it, it becomes a kiss because it's sort of framed with this sunrise occurring between their lips, basically. No, between their foreheads. Between their foreheads? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah anyway, between their two faces, <laughs> anyway. So the, the, the idea of being, uh, you know, fairly heavy-handed symbolism is that their lives have been darkness until this moment where they can come together and mm. be as one and then the sun rises and glory happens and and so it, i think it i never took it that way to be honest i just thought that it took that as a i mean maybe you're right i'm oh. not sure but i've never looked at it in that way i just thought that i just saw that as being kind of a just a obviously visually beautiful moment but there wasn't it's, any overt symbolism to my mind. The word that you just used, I think, in a way, sums up what you have to avoid in a Jane Austen adaptation, heavy-handedness. Um, whether on the side of the sweet tweeness cups of tea or on the side of gritty realism that's more like something out of Conrad than Jane Austen. You have to avoid those. And one area where I think it's so hard to avoid is in the, if you like, the comic characters. Characters like, um, I mean, the obvious one is um, Mr. Collins, Collins, exactly. Mr. Collins and um, Mrs. Bennet, too. Mm. Mm. Um, And part of what was great about the 1995 series, we'll keep coming back to it, I'm sure, is the gold standard. It is the gold standard. (laughs) Um, Is that Alison Steadman and uh, David Bamber were able to to enjoy those roles and to bring out the humour without falling into overplaying it. Mm. Yeah. Very hard to do, and, yeah. and they, they succeeded classes. very well. To, I suppose some contrasts are helpful. Um, we should talk about the the, uh, the film of Persuasion, the one with Amanda Root and Sheeran Hines. No, Kieran Hines. Is that, was that a BBC? Was that a no, short no, film? No, 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 it was a, it was a film. came wow. out in the cinemas. I saw it in the cinemas. Well, how long ago? In the 90s. It oh, was no, in the I've whole never, Jane I've never seen it. Oh, right. you haven't but seen it. But there is a more recent version, like a sort of like a mini-movie mm. that BBC did. Maybe five, ten years ago or something like that? Well, I haven't seen that. <laughs> but I mean, to talk about... Have you seen the one I've, I'm talking I've about? I've never seen, actually, a filmed version of Persuasion. Ever. Oh, no, no, no. It, it, well, this one is... I'll have to talk about it on my own for just a little bit. It is very good. And I think... I mean, first of all, I actually think if you, if you want to film a Jane Austen book as opposed to making a series of it, Persuasion would be the one to choose for the simple reason that it's short. Right. It's, it's a lot mm. shorter than the others. And there's, there's a lot more sort of clarity to the narrative as well. There's not as many sort of side 
narratives that yes, kind of it's swing not, in together. In, in, yeah, narratively, it's not an especially complex story. And the character of Mary Musgrove in that, who is the you know, the irritating um, hypochondriac character, mm. is played very nicely by um, Sophie Thompson. And, again, she makes the character irritating, not completely <laughs> unsympathetic, but, yes, certainly not sweet. But at the same time, it's not overdone. And, you know, yes, I've met people like that. Now, having said that, in the 1996 Emma film, I think that Sophie Thompson... Fight! 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 No, I think that Sophie Thompson did not do a particularly good job as Miss Bates. Um, Maybe I'd feel differently... Maybe I would feel differently if I saw the film again. I haven't actually watched it for a long time, but... I didn't realise that that's the actress you were talking about. That film irritated me from start to finish. Um, One of the things that irritated me was... Sophie Thompson's Miss Bates. Obviously the character, in a way, is meant to be irritating, but but she's also meant to be lovable, and unless she's also lovable, the Box Hill scene will not work. Right. So, of course. We can, okay, we can disagree, we obviously do disagree <laughs> about yes, when people fall into this trap of overplaying, but we can, of course, agree that, yes, that's one fatal problem that you can easily fall into. I do think it's one of the, the elements of, of Jane Austen, you were talking about earlier about that that danger of becoming twee mm. and one of the the beautiful things of of jane austen's writing is how deftly she controls her satire yes. so she playfully observes the absurdities in her characters but she's never sort of pointing at them or ridiculing them hating them mm. even miss i think a character like um mr collins who is reprehensible on the page but you don't get the sense that she despises this figure like she can you can kind of get an idea that He's utterly ridiculous. He's utterly swallowed by his own sense of self-importance and blinded by you know, his, his affection for Lady Catherine de Burr. But he's not a villain. Uh, and I think it's easy in performances of her characters to tip over into just straight comedy as if you're in like a sketch satire or mm-hmm. something. It's like uh, this is a broad character who is so of ridiculous and extreme that you lose that humanity that is meant to be in them and the affection the the empathy that is required to kind of present that character in the narrative and on the page suddenly they turn into a cartoon and you you lose that capacity again it becomes twee or affected or silly i think that yeah maybe she has the capacity of potentially forming into a a cartoonish sort of version of miss bates but I, it didn't really bother me, honestly. It doesn't really bother me. I actually read Emma after I had watched the Gwyneth Paltrow movie many, many times. And funnily enough, when I read the novel, you'll probably take issue with this, Jeremy, but I was actually surprised at how faithful the film was to the novel for some reason, whatever, maybe it's to do with expectations, but I was expecting it to actually be more different than it actually was. And I think that maybe, yeah, you're right, maybe it does err on the side of being a bit twee. Um, a bit saccharine, but I think that it, I would argue that it does hold to the spirit of Emma, even if it loses some of the trappings that make the novel so great. And I also find it hilariously funny. I think it's just a very funny film. I do find it very funny. <laughs> Jeremy's reading wisely silent. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, to be fair, partly it's because I hated the film so much when I saw it that I've never since watched it all the way through. How old were you when you watched it? Oh, it was in my teens. It was in the cinema again. You need to watch it again as an adult. <sighs> <laughs> Wait, did you you walk it's right out there of it? On the... No, I didn't oh, okay, walk out. Sorry, of it. I was there with my grandmother. I couldn't walk out. Of it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll see you in the car park. I can't handle Miss Bates. Uh, how about uh, Sense and Sensibility? Is another extraordinarily famous 
film that came out at that time. I mean, 1995 and 96 were just an explosion mm. of mm. of Austin adaptations, and I mean, she was everywhere. But that Ang Lee, huge actor, directed, yeah, uh, Emma written Thompson. by Emma Thompson and starring Emma Thompson. That that film, Academy Award winning, I think. I really like that film. I know you're not particularly fond of it, Jeremy, but um, I, I I think this that one actually diverts from the book a little bit more than the Emma. Uh, Gwyneth Paltrow Emma but some of the changes I actually don't mind like I kind of like that she put more of a relationship between Edward and the little sister Margaret that they had they have that kind of nice little connection that nice little friendship that's not in the novel at all and I was a bit disappointed when I read again I read most of these after I'd already seen the adaptations I was a bit disappointed that wasn't there but I do think that they didn't you know because it's a film and there's just not time it would have been nice to see more of the relationship between um, Marianne and Willoughby and how that actually really does devolve because there's a lot more to it in the book I did not like it I didn't hate it as nearly as much as I hated the the Emma I really see on this one I'm drifting more towards Anna I, I quite like the the it's nice movie. that you're in the, between the two yeah, of us yeah. <laughs> it's like very mediating nice the two <laughs> I felt it, it fell into the trap of um, yes, trying to be sweet and English in the way that American audiences go gaga about. Well, <laughs> they did. Okay, to, to be fair to you, and, and I, I like him, but yeah, Hugh Grant was being his fluffy headed sort of. Uh, exactly. Fumbling I, I, I kind always of... think I, I can stand to watch Hugh Grant as long as he is playing an absolute rat bag. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. I mean, he's good in About a Boy. I was going to say, mm. I love About a Boy. Exactly. <laughs> he is good in that. I think when he is the, yes, the sweet, nervous, bumbling Englishman yeah. out of a novel, I just think I, w- I want him to go away. <laughs> just get off the screen. That, that is, that's just me. I think he looks awkward playing that role, personally. I like him in it, but he does I, I remember awkward. thinking he yeah. was awkward. Um, and, and again, I mean... Alan Rickman is a fantastic. He was a fabulous actor. There are just not words, but I, I don't think he was especially good as Colonel mm, Brandon. I think I agree um, with you. Actually, again, uh, what's her name? Um, Imelda Staunton, a very good actress, and and I think she really did overplay that role. The shrieking and the twittering. In fact, I remember once sitting watching it, and and at the point where, at one of the numerous points, I suppose, where she suddenly gets into a tizz about something, I thought. Look, don't do it. <laughs> I mean, no one in the real world behaves like that. You're just screaming, laugh at me, laugh at me, aren't I funny? Yes, that film got to me. <laughs> Believe me, I didn't hate it nearly as much as the Emma. I'm just <laughs> highlighting think, the things I didn't like. I do think for me it's 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 all Emma Thompson. I like the script. I, th- I think this, it's a, actually a really elegantly ordered script and um, very economical, actually, at the beginning she truncates a lot of material into a very brief span of time that's necessary to get through, like without expunging it from the narrative. So I was impressed by that. And then her performance, I I mean, I adore Emma Thompson in anything, but I thought her performance was so well controlled in that oh, one. So that it's look, if you don't the, like at the film, moment where she breaks, yeah, yeah, the moment where she breaks at the end and they don't stick a camera in her face. I love that. They just, they leave it, back they just let her have her moment in the corner of the screen and it just is really really good but you're right everything that revolves around it might have some problems and i cannot i wish i could but i can't disagree about about hugh grant he but willoughby is very well cast i can't remember the actor's name but he he was was pretty good yeah i thought he was very willoughby for me but i mean just going on to emma i mean i i agree i think emma thompson's performance and maybe because she wrote the script and she was so heavily involved in the process Mm. maybe it was it meant more to her whatever i mean she's a great actress anyway but her performance in that is really stand out and i think that another scene that comes to mind was um 
when uh, Miss Steele, Lucy Steele, tells her about her secret engagement with Edward, played by Hugh Grant, and the way that she reacts to that is yeah. just, it's its just there's so much going on in her face, but she's, it's so repressed and restrained because she, A, can't reveal that she's in love with him, and B, because of just the niceties and the, the courtesies of the time, she really can't let that yeah. slip either, and Emma Thompson just carries that, all of that in her face, and it's a marvellous, marvellous scene from just purely acting point of view. If I could just step in for a second... I expect that neither of you have seen the 1981 BBC Sense and Sensibility. No. 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 I mean, I didn't think you would have. I mention it because it's from a different era, an era when the BBC did lots and lots of things, but by and large you didn't have big names in, in the sense of people who had made themselves famous in Hollywood. Stage actors on the whole um, who were therefore completely comfortable with the dialogue. There was no affectation. And basically the BBC just again and again did really competent... Some people would say you know, literal plodding, but whatever, <laughs> competent work. And I really like that adaptation. Um, again, the names of virtually all of the lead actors you, you would never have heard of. And this is Sense and Sensibility. Yes, Sense and Sensibility. But, um, but it's a really nice, faithful, yeah, beautiful adaptation. So cool. I'm going to look it up because yes. I've seen a lot of the adaptations. Obviously, not all of them, but it's always nice to know of some other ones. And there's this other version I haven't seen, but you say it's all right, Colin. Oh yeah, sorry. Uh, there's a slightly more modern uh, version, which is good. It's it's good. It's three episodes, I believe. Oh, it's a series. Yes, so it's a mini series, but in that sort of midway point where it's not your full six episode Pride and Prejudice. I have seen this one. It's, uh, where are we? Oh, yes, it was written by Andrew Davies. Hmm. And directed by John Alexander. But, um... You don't sound very impressed. Oh, well, no, I mean, I think, I think Andrew Davies has done some excellent work. And I, I didn't especially dislike this one. I thought it was okay. Actually, one of my only... One of the standout objections I had to it that I can remember is I didn't think Willoughby was at all well cast. No, for a very simple reason. Physically, he was all wrong. He's a little smaller, isn't he? A bit more Small, sort of dark hair, and just frankly, not very physically attractive. You, yeah. you need Willoughby to be um, a kind of Adonis. Yeah, he's a like, dashing romantic yes. hero. Who, mm. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, yes, like I, I do remember thinking that. I can't remember his performance exactly, but visually, yes, mm. he didn't really feel out the shape of what I expected that character to be. I'm sorry. I'm oh, that's right. I was just going to ask, did you like the actor who was cast as Willoughby in the Emma Thompson version? I honestly don't remember who it was. <laughs> oh, well, they're married now. I wish I could remember his... I'm just looking it up now. I wish I could remember his name. Well, he was. He had the very much the tall, dark and handsome, very, very dashing Greg Wise. And that's actually a picture of him from the Sense Sensibility. Oh. You don't remember him? Looking very wet. Not well, no. <laughs> yes, indeed. Sort of like a cross rain, between Wickham and Darcy. No, I don't remember him. Uh, he's, um, oh, I think he was great. Before we move off this, actually, I did want to just mention Northanger Abbey. Did anybody see that? I but... love that version of Northanger Abbey. Yeah, did I you see the so Felicity much. Jones Northanger no. Abbey? It's Be- only a short movie, but it's beautiful. It, yeah, it's. Um, I think a tight 90 minutes actually they, they yeah, really short. cut it down I, really loved like it. I love it because I think it's just really well cast every single character is, is, is just I mean every single actor playing the characters is just spot on in my mind and I, I really loved the film and I then I read the novel and again it's, it's, it's because it because her heroine is slightly younger I think Catherine Morland is slightly younger than some of Jane Austen's other heroines there is more of a sweetness, not in a saccharine way, but there is more of a general, genuine sweetness, I think, about Northanger Abbey. And also, in, in a sort of similar way to the way that she deals with Emma, that her character, even though she's very likeable and very lovable, 
there's a, there's an obvious maturation that needs to happen in her character arc, and she needs to sort of grow up and grow out of her over overactive imagination and and trust in fickle friends. And, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But it's a it's it's a very sweet little. It's got a couple of odd scenes, I will say, but overall, I really like it. Is there a saturation point? Do you think with with these adaptations of Austin? I mean, starting from the mid '90s, there was the, an almost a glut of uh, adaptations of Austin. Do we reach a point where you know we're farming from a very limited number of texts? Does there become a point where there's nothing left to say and you're just beating a dead horse, or do you, do you feel like there? These are texts that are regenerative enough that they're, they're always going to be able to keep producing material. I'm tempted to say there very much is a saturation point. Do you feel we're reaching it, or, or you just get long the sense since that... reached it? I'm tempted to say. It. I mean, no, no, I, I suppose, but it's part of a more general phenomenon. I think you know, this this age of incessant remakes. Mm. Um, it's actually really sad. I mean, this is going well beyond Jane Austen now, but I think, well, come on. So you're in the, the mindset of, we're on our fourth Spider-Man now. That oh, well, sort of well, thing no, 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 actually, that's a little bit different. I mean, with Spider-Man, you know, each each remake, you know, it's actually a different story, um, as well as just different actors and all the rest of it. And so it's, you know, it, it, the whole thing is different in one sense, and that, that can be fine. But I think, I mean, yes, with, okay, with Pride and Prejudice, just to start with that one, okay. When the 1995 series came out, I'm pretty sure there had been a... I think there'd been a previous BBC series, although I haven't seen it, so I can't judge what it's like. But, of course, you know, there'd been the the famous and, and not very good film with um, Grigas and, and Laurence Olivier. And so, yes, there was actually every reason, if, if that's your benchmark, to make yeah. a series which was, in fact, faithful and had good actors and all the rest of it. Now, I feel like saying, OK, having done that, right, leave Pride and Prejudice alone. Mm. Just, you are not going to improve on the 1995 series. I couldn't agree um, more. And, and I, why bother trying? I remember them talking, because I watched some of the um, the making of mm. uh, videos about around the Kira Knightley one, and, and the director was saying, oh, you know, they haven't actually, we haven't actually had a film of Pride and Prejudice in, like, 30 <laughs> years or something. Like, I went, well, probably because everyone realised that they nailed it. The BBC yeah. nailed it, and mm. there was no point in trying I mean, yeah, I, I agree about the saturation point to an extent because I think there are some of her novels that just haven't been really done brilliantly enough. I mean, I, I have yet to see a version of Persuasion that I think really just nails the beauty and the sense and the and the just the atmosphere of the novel. See the film. <laughs> oh, maybe no, that, so. Maybe the it has. Film. Maybe I just haven't seen film. it. But yeah. I think if you if you if it's been done right, if it, if it, if they've captured it and they've nailed it, then there's no. I just don't think there's a point. Like leave it. Like leave it. It's mm. it has been made. It's been done. There's exactly. no point rehashing mm. it again and again because you're never going to improve on it. I mean, apparently, I, I was a. This is again not Jane Austen. I was amazed to to hear that the the most adapted novel of all time is actually Jane Eyre by some yeah. reckonings at least you know, with, with counting films, series and all the rest of it. of it and I mean when I first read that, uh, one reason I was amazed was simply I thought it's unadaptable you cannot make that into a film why do you say that? Oh, look I mean th- th- this is very much a, you know, another podcast perhaps <laughs> but um, at the very least into a film partly is for length reasons you know, I mean it's a gigantic book oh sorry I thought you meant just onto the screen in general no 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 no, no. I mean well I'm not sure if it's adaptable from, for other reasons as well, but I think, look, yeah, mad to try to. But, but also, okay, yeah, I, I don't know if there's one version of, of that that's sort of a definitive one. I doubt it, to be honest. But yeah, as, as you say, we can agree about the 995 Pride and Prejudice. 
see what you think about the persuasion no, film. No, no, I don't know. No. Sense and sensibility, mm, not sure about that myself, but okay. <laughs> but then again, I think, well, okay, maybe there's a case for trying another full version of that if, you, if you're not, if like me, you're not all that impressed with the Emma Thompson one. But then again, I'm tempted to say not doesn't lend itself to a film. Series, mm. yes, not so much a film. I think they all lend themselves more to a series than a film. To yes, no, indeed. Mm. Having said that, I really like the Northanger Abbey version of it. I don't think they're really... I think that does the job, so to speak. I mean, it's quite different with... We haven't talked about this yet. It's quite different with... I don't know what the right term for this is, but things like... Um, uh, Bridget Jones' Diary. Yes, Bridget, exactly, Bridget Jones' Diary. And I mean, whatever you think of Bridget Jones' Diary, okay, it's... Um, it's not simply an adaptation. It's a kind of mm. <laughs> reimagining whatever other words you want to use. It's, 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 it's something new in an important way. Well, that was actually my next question mm. was going to be. So, obviously, straight adaptations, we've seen so many bonnets and gloves and people in... <laughs> the, yeah, exactly. Like, there's so many top hats and people at tea parties and a Box Hill party recreated over and over again. And I adore it. I love it. But... Yeah, you do get to that point where you're like, I've seen this. So, there are different actors enacting these roles, but it's the same same moment uh, being rendered on screen. Whereas, in these dramatic reinterpretations, like your Clueless, like your Bridget Jones's Diary, or you know, Bride and Prejudice, all these things, mm. they're, they're taking the, the themes or the elements, the characters, and uh, completely reconstituting them in a new way. Does that work? Is that a new... Depends on how it's done. I mean, when I first saw Bridget Jones' Diary, I actually really enjoyed it. I, I, I found the fight scene towards the end um, very funny. But um, I find it excruciatingly awkward sure, to no. watch. <laughs> <laughs> the whole film, I mean. No, no, sure, that's fine. Oh. I mean, look, I, I, I wouldn't watch it again, I don't think. But I think, I think if it worked, and that's an open question perhaps, Bridget Jones' Diary worked because it's a kind of... Again, what word is right? A pastiche. Um, I mean, mm. it, it was. I mean, the the fact that you had Colin Firth as Dar- as as the Darcy equivalent was obviously deliberate, and I mean, it's very much playing on people's affection for the series as well as for the book, and so it, it's sort of all in the class of its own there, really. But yeah, if if you can, if you want to do things like that, and if, and if you've got the the pizzazz to make it work, then by all means go ahead. But mm. but that's but that's no longer adaptation. That's sort of free. You know, Rhapsody or whatever the right word for it is. It's interesting that this is kind of, this is a little bit left field, but it's interesting how some of these series, some of these adaptations are so iconic that people will take certain elements of them without even noticing. Like, ever since the 1995 BBC version of Pride and Prejudice came out, I think every version I've ever seen of Pride and Prejudice, Lizzie is a brunette and Jane is blonde. Like, honestly, in every (laughs) single version, it's 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 kind of funny. And I don't quite know why that is. But it is interesting because I think, and that kind of I think shows that these series really do hit the nail on the head because it embeds that version of whatever it is because it's it's characterised so well into our minds and it's mm. like everyone has to follow suit. But I do think that we've definitely got to the point where of, of oversaturation, not necessarily just with the adaptations purely, but even with the playing on the mm. um, on on the whole genre. And I mean, I've heard people say that Pride and Prejudice was the original romantic comedy and that all romantic comedies are essentially based on it. I don't know if that's true, but I do think that... I, I would make that argument. I, I think it's it's kind of what you were saying, again, with the, the way in which it, it becomes a culturally accepted norm because of how perfectly it was articulated. So the Lizzie is brunette and, and uh, Jane is blonde for some reason that tapped into something and people went, oh, okay, yep, that's okay. Jane is the icy Same kind right. of blonde. Yeah, and and I think Pride and Prejudice is like that. Austin so exquisitely 
constructed a narrative in which you get the, the two romantic protagonists can have a misconception about one another that enables them to be at odds but also strangely learn to respect and regard each other through their conflict so that when they come together so it just became lazy mimicry for later authors to to rip that off yeah probably i mean just going back to the original question that you asked in your introduction i think that the re- why have they been continually rehashed and rehashed? I think it's because, I mean, personally, I think it's just because there's a very obvious love for these novels and for her, for her writing and for her stories. And I think that because they've been adapted to, you know, ad infinitum, I think there's a desire to, it's kind of a, I guess it's a little bit consumeristic. There's a desire to sort of capitalise on that popularity and that love, but by doing something new and different with it. And sometimes it works, like Bridget Jones's Diary, and sometimes sometimes it's abysmal, like Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, which I think should never have seen the light of day as either a book or a film. <laughs> yeah, that was a very bizarre rush of genre-mashing but texts. I, but I mean, even like funny kind of things like, did you see Lost in Austin? Oh, Which I appropriated no. the title of for this podcast. I mean, I think I, I referenced it uh, in, in the intro, but no, I've not seen oh, it. Oh, so it's something that one of the, it's honestly, I think I could talk to any girl and they'll be like, they would have seen it. Everyone seems to have seen it. But I think that kind of... It's a woman falls back in time. Well, she's more Austin's. of a girl. She's sort of, I think, I don't know how old she is, but she looks like she's about you know, maybe 16 or 17. But anyway, she kind of falls into one of Jane Austen's novels and basically becomes a character in, you know, Pride and Prejudice, say, or and mm. and, and the story, obviously, she ends up affecting the narrative events and the story kind of changes. It's just kind of like a funny take. And it's meant to be for women like me who have grown up kind of obsessively watching all things Jane Austen. But I think that the reason they do have kind of silly, you know, series like Lost in Austin or, or, or any of the others is because they know it and they know that women are going to watch it. They know it's going to be popular. They know it's going to be consumed. And I think that's why they continue to keep re- keep making this sort of stuff. I think... It's not like it almost sounds a bit fan, fan fiction-y. Yeah, know, it really is. It's like televised fan fiction. How about something like Clueless? I mean, we mentioned uh, Bridget I Jones love Clueless. Dark. So do I. But why, why does that work? I think that Jeremy when... would be horrified. Really? It really takes liberties with the story of Emma. Well, I th- and I think that's actually... I think that's the point as well. But uh, but I think it's why it works, because it nods enough to its source material to say, yeah, we, we love Emma and we're you know recreating elements of Emma, but it's also not a faithful recreation. We, we have a different intent rather than just presenting the story of Emma. So much so that... Obviously, there's a whole a whole swath of viewers who would have watched that film having no idea that it was based on. No, that's film. very true, and maybe that's why it's so popular as well, and why it's it's done so well because it's not trying to be a specific re. It is kind of a reinterpretation, I guess. Yeah. It? It's, it's basically Emma if she was a sort of like a Hollywood Valley girl, very ditzy, but lovable. But um, it is it is quite if you don't take it seriously at all, which it's definitely not meant to be. It's uh, it's very funny. Well, because she's not ditzy. She's not stupid. She's just her. She's not, but she's meant to be ditzy. She's meant to be the blonde, very interested in clothes and fashion. She's a kind of like a little rich princess. Her yeah, exactly. Her her interests are geared towards fashion and sort of frivolity. But she's never stupid. They never present her as dumb. She's just yeah. It's weird because I kind of think of her as being ditzy but not stupid either. If you can, <laughs> yeah. that's not a contradiction in terms. Well, in some ways, again, she's she's very much like, the, like like legally blonde. Like Reese Witherspoon's character, legally blonde, is kind of similar to Alicia Silverstone's. Um, yeah. Is, is she his name Emma in Clueless? I can't even remember. No, it's it's L L. Yeah. No, 
That's that's legally blonde again. I'm getting confused. Um, What's her name? This is dreadful. Oh, oh Cher. Yeah. <laughs> Cher. I just remembered it just as you looked it up. Sorry. Uh, no, absolutely. And, but I, I, she's not. She's not dumb. Like she, much like the original Emma, she's very giving of herself, and she's very uh, like she's constantly giving food to help the poor, and or giving. <laughs> giving her old clothes to give the poor like just stupid things like that but she's not you know because that that film would not work if she were cruel or you know if she were oh, um, no. yeah like she she is meant to be good-hearted and and um, eager to help other people just with her own blindness like yeah. the original emma so. yeah but it's more of a parody i would say than anything else on the original emma you don't think maybe i think it's a parody on uh, contemporary uh, hollywood it's that too. Yeah. It's that too. So, and again, it's it's sort of taking the spirit of the original book, which is social satire and and kind of character study, and reconstituting it in the, a contemporary American setting. Mm. Which again, I, I, I have, I have no doubt that Jeremy would hate it, but uh, <laughs> I, I, I still think you should watch it. Though have a certain affection for it. Maybe I should watch it, but just don't that go in expecting husband. much. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, no, but that's the thing. I mean, if if I don't go in there expecting Emma. Then I might have exactly, quite yeah. like it, or at least I might not hate it. I think it was it is it has that quality of disguising the vegetables when mm. you feed them to your kids. You know, it's just <laughs> in, hey, kids, enjoy this fun comedy film with the you know vivacious uh, and and lovable Alicia Silverstone, and then you watch it, and in the end, go, now did you know what that was based on? <laughs> it's obnoxious, uh, but but it works. It's, you know, Shakespeare can be done in the same way, although yeah. not with that horrifying "She's the Man" film. Oh Screw gosh, that. I thought you were going to say ten things I hate about you, and I, was no, that's say, a, I love that movie. That's a good version of how it can be done. Are there any other versions that have been made of adaptations of Jonathan's novels apart from Clueless? There are many, in fact. I, m- I mentioned a couple of web series. That kind of use. Oh yes. The Lizzie Bennet Diaries. Exactly right. Uh, you have heard of this. I don't know anything about it. My, my wife um, did, did enjoy them. I don't know if she watched or listened or watched or whatever the right word is to all of them. Yeah, the Lizzie Bennet Diaries. It's on YouTube. Am I right? Is it on YouTube? Something like that. Yes. And then uh, Emma Accepted. There was a sequel to it based on Emma. <laughs> done, I believe, by the same mm-hmm. people. There's, there's one... Uh, the Kate Moreland Chronicles is a web series adaptation of... So, Northanger uh, Abbey? Well, no, but I, I think she's like a monster hunter or something. They turn her into an actual... Uh, <laughs> Honestly. Yeah. I haven't uh, watched it, but it's, it's it's something along those lines. I think Clueless and Bridget Jones are kind of the most iconic ones, though. I, most certainly, yeah. I think I think they remain kind of the, the top of that, that pile. There's a film called Metropolitan. Um, set, set <laughs> Doesn't in, sound like it's Jane Austen at all. Set in Manhattan that is uh, a riff on Manhattan. Mansfield Park, apparently. Oh, we didn't mention this actually. Has any have, have either of you seen the Francis O'Connor version of Mansfield Park? No. Uh, it, look, it, by itself as a movie, it's actually not bad. It's actually quite enjoyable. But I was really disappointed when I read the book and I realised it was so the movie was so different. Like it was, it was meant, but not in a way as if it was trying to be different. It was trying to be the novel, but they just kind of very freely changed um, characters, elements of the plot. Um, just by it, it was not very faithful to the book. Let me put it that way. Mm-hmm. They bring in all these kind of. Oh, just uncomfortable elements that are just... It maybe goes to that gritty realism that you were talking about before, Jeremy. This is not very Jane Austen at all, mm. which is, um, you know, the, so the oldest the oldest brother, who's a little bit wayward, I can't remember, Tom, in this film, he basically, his father owns a bunch of slave colonies, and so Tom is... I, I don't think that's in the book at all. 
And his and the eldest son is going to sort of work these slave colonies and isn't it mildly suggested that there's slaves? Is it? There's a there's some there's something about trade or, or investment in Madeira or something. I it's it's too I don't remember. Well they really the go into that in this but... film and it just feels mm. a bit off. It doesn't feel very Jane Austen and I don't remember picking that up at all. I mean even if it's novel. in the book, it's it's not highlighted in the way that clearly it is in the film. Yeah. Well perhaps there's more reason for it. I had, look I only read the book once and it was a little bit of a little bit the Napoleonic Wars are just in the background kind of alluded mm. to yeah. but never but overt. I, I imagine yeah. you know an adaptation of somebody who kind of walked in spattered in blood like it would it would be a little shocking. True, but to be fair, that's probably a very hard book to adapt. Mm. I, I don't even know how you would do it well. I saw a, um, a stage version of it once. Oh, really? Which, um, yes, put on by the Genesians, which I quite enjoyed. <laughs> I mean, it was a very straight adaptation. Mm. Austen is, uh, by my reckoning, very funny, very romantic, it can't be denied, and very satirical. What do you think translates best in these adaptations, and what do you think gets frequently lost? Well, as Jeremy mentioned before, I think I think a lot of it comes down to authenticity. I think that that's when we keep talking, we keep going back to it, because it is just so brilliant. The 1995 BBC miniseries of Pride and Prejudice, it really was beautifully authentic, well-written, and well-structured. There's only... When you re- say authentic, do you mean to the original novel? Or? Yeah, I don't just mean faithful, but not... Yeah, it's just very an authentic adaptation. It's not... It doesn't try to bring in elements from different periods of time. It doesn't try to pander to a 21st century audience. If you don't understand the dialogue, you just don't understand it. They don't, you know, I said before, they don't apologise for that. That's the problem, I think, in a lot of modern, in a lot of, not modern, sorry, but newer adaptations where, rightly or wrongly, I think they sort of, not undermine, what's the word? I don't think they, I don't think that they give enough credit to the audience to be able to Mm. figure things out for themselves. It's like a lot of it has to be explained. Some of Jane Austen's, Either the ideas and the principles held at the time or some of the language needs to be dumbed down a little bit Mm. to appeal to a modern audience. I think that's a big mistake. I think people can smell that from a mile away, which is why I think any any TV series or film that does that is just never going to be, never going to do as well as um, things like the BBC Pride and Prejudice. Look, I'll only repeat what I said earlier, taking the word heavy-handedness. Hmm. I mean, I mean I, I'm inclined to say it's the bane of contemporary cinema, cinema and television, seeming incapacity just to do things straight and to, as you say, trust the audience to get it. Hmm. And yes, it, it spoils everything, but it spoils Jane Austen out of all recognition. The only other comment I made, I mean, we haven't talked about one of the more recent Emma adaptations, the Romola Gay one. Oh, oh yeah. And, and, and I know that um, Anna doesn't like this adaptation. I just tell um, him that actress, I can't watch oh, it. Oh, she's lovely. I can't stand Without wanting to, I mean, we are trying to sum up, but I mean, I, I, I mention it because actually, again, I, I having watched that, you know, I, I certainly far preferred it to the film, um, but I'm tempted to think Emma is an unadaptable novel. Yeah. Because it's so very much, and as I said when we did the last podcast, this is part of why I love it so much, it's not a novel of action. Mm. It's, you know, it's so very much internal, little things, the things that don't translate onto the screen or onto the stage, uh, what make it, I think, to a greater extent than any of her other novels. And so, yes, I mean, my advice to anyone trying to make the perfect ever is you won't do it, just stick with the book. But... Well, I think, actually, what I, I think gets lost in the translations actually runs quite nicely off the back of your your comment there is uh, one of the, the elements that I adore about Jane Austen is how she handles dialogue and how she moves in and out of the minds of her characters and that's all dependent upon this exquisite way that she handles the narrator 
Like her, her narrative voice is evolutionary uh, at the time that she was writing. And one of the things that always gets lost is the free and direct speech where she's able to present what characters have said or the idea of what they've said without actually like delivering it as dialogue mm. sometimes. And it creates this wonderful frisson where you're not really sure... Well, is that what the character believes or is that what the narrator believes? And, and where does the social commentary and, and satire lie in there? It's this sort of wonderfully fluid kind of movement. You lose all of that when you turn it into a screen production because well, the character just has to say the words. Like, you can't have that vagary about, well, did Mr. Collins actually kind of say that or was he just sort of vaguely expressing something and she was critiquing more about society than that the extension of that of course is that you lose all of those wonderful movements of the the omniscient narrator into the mind and out of the minds of their characters and emma is the perfect representation of that it's a, it's a character that has a a fuller more vibrant life because of the way in which jane austen's narrative perspective can flow through her can stand back in judgment sometimes can get intimately into her like innermost experience and try and render it for us. Uh, and you, again, uh, by virtue of cinema, uh, the director just kind of has to pick a position at sometimes. Like you, you can't, you can't do that. You can't flow in and out of their inner psyche without it being some arduous, horrible inner monologue that would just overwhelm and saturate and kill any of that subtlety uh, if they were to try it. So, I, I find that that absence makes a lot of her work, or at least what is divine about her work, unfilmable. That's not to say I don't love them. I love the adaptations of her work. But the the part of her writing that I like the most can never be kind of rendered on screen. It's it, by virtue of the way that her writing functions. It just can't be put through a camera. What do you think of the versions where they have a narrator meant to be Jane Austen? I still don't think it works. Um, I, I don't think it's ever been successfully rendered the way that she can do it on the page. No, I agree. Well, those were some of our thoughts about just some of the innumerable adaptations and works of homage drawn from Jane Austen's novels. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please do subscribe. We have new episodes every other week. And if you like what we're doing here, please do tell your friends. And if you're so inclined, give us a review on iTunes. Those five-star reviews really do help. If you'd like to comment on anything that you've heard or offer feedback, please do drop us a line. Our email is conversations at campion.edu.au. I want to thank Anna and Jeremy for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. And we will be back next time with another Campion Conversation. We hope you can join us then. This episode brought to you by Nagging Domestic Paranoia. You did switch the oven off this morning, yeah? And you locked all of the doors in the house, because you know sometimes you you forget that one, and the windows. I mean, so, I know you're probably in the car right now or at work, but um, just something to think about all day, incessantly, with no relief. Nagging Domestic Paranoia. It's free. Campion Conversations is a production of Campion College of the Liberal Arts, Australia.